Um, so we're continuing our series um, on James, um, and James is a, uh, is, is a really cool book. I've really enjoyed it so far, uh, and we're at the moment right in the middle, uh, chapter two. So I'm going to kick off with a story, uh, and we're in a moment going to go through starting from chapter two, verse 14. And I can see why James gets irritated with this lectern. It is really irritating. Right, okay. <laughs> Give me a moment. It doesn't, like, the, even the little flicky things, they even do what they're supposed to do. It's ridiculous. Um, so in January, the, on January the 14th, 2008, two strangers met for the first time on Waterloo Bridge. Um, a guy called Johnny Benjamin uh, was in absolute despair. He'd been wrestling with depression, and he wanted to take his own life. And he was literally on the edge about to take his own life. And there was a man called Neil Laybourne um, who noticed on his commute uh, this guy on the bridge. Um, and he paused and he went over and he persistently worked to convince Johnny that, there w- that life was worth living. They didn't need to take his own life. And he was persistent. He didn't let Johnny jump. And he talked to him and talked to him and talked to him until he finally came away from the edge. Um, And what Johnny received in that moment um, was the best gift he'd ever had. He had the gift of a second chance. He had the gift of an opportunity for new life. Um, And it's a story that recently was in the news because these two ran the marathon together. Um, So some of you may have noticed. It's a wonderful story. And this story is particularly stirring because it's it's a reflection, if you like, of what we see in the gospel. We were... on on a precipice. Without Christ, we were faced with our own sin, uh, the own judgment that we deserved. Our feet, if you like, was hanging over the edge of the judgment that we deserved. And a stranger, someone who we did not know, reached out to us and gave us a second chance, gave us new life. And this is what we get in Jesus. The Bible is very clear. In Ephesians, it said that we were strangers from God, but he reached out to us. But it doesn't end there. Um, The gift of life that Johnny received led him to get help, to work through his depression. Um, But more than that, he used his opportunity for a new start in life. And what he did, he started a charity that helped many other people wrestling with despair and depression. And what he did was he took this gift he'd been given and did something with it. And the gospel does something else for us. Not only are we given this gift of life, but we are called to do something with it. And how, how sad would it be if, if Johnny had been given this new chance of life, but every now and again went back to that bridge and was like, maybe, maybe, and, and, and continued to live his life um, uh, thinking about depression, facing uh, the prospect of taking his life. No, no, no. What, what we see that was so wonderful and so encouraging is that he has a completely different outlook of, on life because of this gift he was given. This is what the gospel is for us. And when we um, look at the gospel, we are saved by Jesus. We are given uh, a life by Jesus and empowered by him to live for Jesus. That's what we're going to go through today. And we're looking at James, who was a pastor in Jerusalem. And James was speaking to predominantly Christians, to predominantly um, uh, like Jews who had become Christians and had been given this new life, but weren't doing anything about it. And he is, time and time again, going to pick out little aspects of what we should do as Christians in response to this new life, to Jesus' finished work on the cross. And James is, is concerned with what, with what we call counterfeit fake, sorry, counterfeit faith, fake faith, if you like. So we're going to kick off with verse 14 in chapter 2 of James. 
And it goes something like this. Starts with this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And there's loads and loads to wade through there, so we're going to um, get through it. And let me just pray for us first. Um, Lord God, thank you so much for sending your Holy Spirit. We open up this Bible this morning, and uh, these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were, they were formed by the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, Lord God, we need your Holy Spirit to bring them to life for us. God, what do you want to teach us this morning? Where do you want to lead us? Where do you want to guide us? Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you so desperately. Lord, would you keep us from legalism and from disobedience? God, would you guide us and lovingly lead us to Jesus? Jesus, we want to know you. We want to see you. I pray, just like the scriptures say, would, you, would your word be a light for our feet? Lord God, would our, would our lives look different because of what you teach us through your word? In your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Now, this is a, a little bit of a controversial um, bit of scripture. Martin Luther wasn't a fan of this, uh, and it can be a little bit confusing because you look at other bits of the Bible, particularly bits that Paul has written, and some of it can look contradictory. It can look like they oppose one another. And one of the main um, reasons that people don't like trusting the Bible in our culture is uh, apparent contradictions and places where it looks like it's saying two different things. How on earth can I trust that if it's saying two different things? And yet, what we see in the Bible um, is, is that it all fits together. It works together. The more you dig into the scriptures, you start to see um, the way that it all fits together. A story I found particularly helpful is you can have a doctor who has several patients throughout a day, and he may say to one patient, you need to do more exercise. And he may say to a different patient, you need to do less exercise. And if we took that at face value without understanding the context of who a doctor is and what he does, that could seem contradictory. Why do you say to one person one thing and another person another thing? Now, when we start to dig and actually start to understand the situation, we see that one person's got a broken leg and should do less exercise, and one person is a beast and should do more exercise, right? And so it's so important knowing that um, the Bible is often speaking to slightly different audiences. 
And that doesn't mean we can say, well, these parts of the Bible, which I like, (laughs) I listen to because it's speaking to me, and these parts of the Bible I don't like, and therefore it doesn't speak to me. But the Bible always speaks to us, but often in different ways. And it speaks about different parts of our walk with God. Does that make sense? So it will fit together. And so just to unpack some of the, um, the uh, often the, the areas where there are potential conflicts, we see in Ephesians 2, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not a result of works. And then we look at verse 24, which you just read. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, that can seem very contradictory, right? It can seem like two different things. And, and historically, what we see is a lot of Christians will um, get confused with this and swing one way or another. They'll take one type of scripture out of context and go one way, or another type of scripture out of context and go the other way. So classically, um, Christianity has been scattered with legalists, people who take works. Oh, fantastic. That means that the things I do justify me before God. That means it's really important that I do and do and do, because otherwise God won't love me. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have maybe grown up with that? Maybe not explicitly, but implicitly. You felt it inside. I need to do stuff to please God. It's taken out of context. It's where we don't let um, the whole of Scripture speak to us. Because time and time again, Paul says, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by grace. And yet, how often can we swing to the other side and be so focused on grace that the works we do in our life, we're like, well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what I do with the rest of my life. God, God saved me. I'm, I'm okay with God. My, my salvation is sure because of grace. So it doesn't really matter what I do. And yet the Bible would challenge that. And this is why we look at the whole of Scripture. To understand where the two intersect, Paul says this in Galatians 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What he says is that saving faith results in a change of heart. Something happens on the inside. There is love that bubbles up inside of us, and these lead to actions. It's so important that we see how saving faith produces love, because it's out of that that actions come. Actions don't just come because we feel like we should be doing, doing stuff. When God saves us, he does something in our heart that means that we act differently because of it. So, to try and, and summarise, Paul is talking about faith competing with works for salvation. There we go, let's come up there. Faith um, versus works for salvation. And James says, just the next one, faith completed by works through living for Jesus. Does that make sense? I know we're really labouring this, but the reality is our walk with God can be so confused. Often we confuse the whole vertical relationship with God, which is my justification. And that's where we start to feel guilt or shame. And we've got to go to Scripture time and time again. No, 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 I am fully justified by God. I stand confident, not on my own works, the things I've done or haven't done, but on Jesus' finished work. It's wonderful. It gives us a real confidence. But then we, we can so often um, forget that God has called us to a life of good works, a life of being used by Jesus. And that's the horizontal bit, the, the, uh, the what we do in this world because of what God has done for us. It's in a response to what God has done in us. So we're going to look at two um, fake faiths and then one real faith. So the first, counterfeit faith, is dead faith. <coughs> If we begin uh, in, in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, so he's talking about a brother or sister, that's another, that's a fellow Christian uh, who's poor, who, who can't dress themselves or doesn't have enough money for food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. He's being sarcastic here. It's essentially a Christian who has another Christian around them. Maybe it's in your community. Maybe it's a Christian friend you've got and they're in need. They're in desperate need. You can't feed yourself. That's desperate need. And yet your response to them is, go, be blessed, be blessed. You don't do anything, you're just saying nice things. It's lip service. It's, it's Christians who see the absolute desperate need about, uh, around them and do nothing about it. And James says, can that faith save him? What he's saying is, has something really happened in your heart? Have you actually met Jesus? And, and this, is, this is quite bold. This is quite, um, uh, it's quite personal. Because what it's saying is, are you really actually a Christian? Have you actually met the God who gave everything so that you could have life? And you have a brother or sister around you, part of the same spiritual family. And you say, nah, I'll just leave them. God's, God's saying that is, although we can't see each and everyone's hearts, there was no way that I or anyone else could know what's going on on the inside, except our actions are an overflow of the heart. And so sometimes we have to have difficult conversations with one another. And this doesn't happen that often uh, and shouldn't happen that often. But there are occasions when we see a Christian who just nothing has changed in their life. We have to ask them sometimes difficult questions like, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And not in an accusing way like, oh my goodness, that's ridiculous. You should do this. But I'm concerned for you. Because this should, this should be easy. Not because doing good things is easy, but because if God has shown you so much love, if God has poured out his salvation into your life, uh, compassion should come naturally. Does that make sense? And that's difficult. Not, what, what we're not saying is you should do all these good things and God will love you. What we are saying is if God has loved you, something should change about you. And so when we, whenever we baptize someone, one of the things we wait for, and you don't want to rush baptism because it's a really big sign of God saving you. And one of the things we wait for is to see fruit. And not loads. Like, you don't have to start up, like, missionary organizations to be like, yep, yeah, that's, that's clear, they're a Christian. But you want to see some change. Because the fruit of God changing something in you, when we put trust in God, which is faith, when we trust in God's finished work on the cross, something changes in our hearts. And bits of our life start changing. And they're not necessarily big things, and often they take a bit of time. But they're the things that we work for. And we, and we see that, and we see, ah, God has done something amazing in your life. God has done something amazing in your life. And so dead faith is where we have faith, maybe a lip service, maybe, yeah, I'm a Christian, I did this as a kid, or I did that as a kid, or I'm trusting in, you know, uh, the good things I've done. Um, we say that's dead faith. It hasn't led to repentance. It hasn't led to your heart being transformed by Jesus, because we would see actions. We'd see fruit coming out of that. Uh, we see in, um, what is it, Matthew 7, it says this, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What Jesus is saying is that when, when people who aren't Christians come into your midst, we're not just teaching them to be good people. 
We're not just saying, hey, you should, you should do this, you shouldn't do this, you should um, do good things. It's also, um, we shouldn't as Christians just seek for laws that make people have to do good things. What Jesus is saying is, you need a completely new heart. You need the old tree to be pulled out and a new tree to be planted. What is good news is not that we should do all these good things, but that Jesus gives us new life, and out of that comes everything else. And so what we're always seeking with people who don't know Jesus is that they'd have a new heart, and then the actions will follow. So, number two, we're looking at useless faith. And James continues, he says, But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. So what he's talking about here is Christians who separate out faith and works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying, look, you can't separate these out. They're connected together. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, that is an, that is an odd scripture, right? That is a weird thing that, on first glance, doesn't make loads of sense. What he's saying here is, um, you believe that God is one. That is, you believe that, that God is who he says he is, right? That's great. So do demons. And we see that in the Gospels, right? We see demons recognizing who Jesus is. Oh, we know exactly who Jesus is, is what the demons say. And funnily enough, like the demons know more about who Jesus is than the disciples. But who's the one who's following Jesus? Who's the one who's following Jesus? It's the disciples. And so what James is saying here is he's basically saying, look, if all you do is believe it, if all you've done is memorized a whole bunch of verses, maybe, gosh, been to seminary, you, you, you know what it means to be a Christian, but you do nothing of it. You're just like demons. Demons know who Jesus is, but they do nothing with it, right? Because obviously they haven't repented and followed Jesus. They are fallen, um, fallen creatures. And you can be a Christian and know the truth, but do nothing about it. And it is useless faith. It's useless. What you're supposed to do when God has saved you is respond with it. You're supposed to do um, things with it. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It's useless Faith, And I think it can be really easy for us to separate out uh, our faith, our trust in you, God, and our works, everything else I do, all the decisions I make, all the things I do with my life. Just intellectually believing the gospel produces useless faith. It doesn't do anything. Maybe you can use it in an argument, but otherwise it's wasted. It's not bearing life in you. And what this should look like is when we follow Jesus, we have a life-pursuing discipleship, pursuing being more like Jesus, pursuing this God who we love because he saved us. The Bible talks elsewhere on what it is to be mature in Christ. Paul, uh, Paul cries over, over the Galatians and says, you foolish Galatians, has someone bewitched you? Has someone replaced the gospel with a lie? Uh, he he talks to, to the Corinthians. He says, you should be mature, but you're still eating spiritual milk. For us to be mature as Christians, we need to know what it means to be saved by only grace, but, but to be filled with a life doing things for Jesus out of response to Jesus. I think sometimes uh, the occasional response I've heard to maybe a challenge that a, a brother or sister was brought in love or maybe, I think, I just really want to challenge you. I see this bit of your life. Someone can say, oh, that's legalism. 
I don't need to listen to you because I'm saved by grace, don't you know? I don't need to listen to what you say. Oh, the Bible says that, but I'm saved by grace. There shouldn't really be a challenge here. James says, no, 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 no. You should welcome these challenges. I get to be more like Jesus. I get to respond in love, to grow, to sanctification, which is being changed to be more like Jesus. We should be excited by this. God wants to do stuff through us, with us. This is a wonderful blessing. And to be mature in Christ, we should be running after this. Amen? This is good. So, number three, we move on to what real faith looks like. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What we see is um, Abraham was promised by God uh, that you were going to have descendants, uh, great-granddaughters, great-grandkids who will fill the earth. And he was really old, like 100. And, but because he trusted God, he said, God, you can do everything. You created the whole world. I trust that you can give me a son or daughter. I trust you with that. And then he gave him a son. He gave him Isaac. And then God said, I want you to go and sacrifice your son. What? Not only is this my son, but also this is your promise. But what God did is he said, what, uh, what Abraham did, sorry, is he said, I trust you, God. I trust you. I don't understand what you're doing here, but I trust you. I trust the way you save. I trust the way you bring through. I trust the way that you bring your, your promises to completion, whether I know, understand how that's going to work or not. And he trusted God. What James is saying here is that, um, as he continues, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, but it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How do we know that Abraham believed God. Do we just know that Abraham said, yeah, I trust you, I trust you, and we go, yeah, right, he, he probably trusted God. No, we know he trusted God because he went and did it. He went and he, he put on his son's back this wood. He took his own, um, his son took his own f- uh, fate on his back up this hill. This is his picture of Jesus. And Abraham went and he went to the action, to the very point of killing his own son because he actually trusted God. And his faith, it resulted in action. God, I love you. I trust you. And just at the last moment, God said, stop. It's okay. Your actions have demonstrated your faith on the inside. They've demonstrated the vertical relationship with the horizontal actions that you were doing. And and James says, this is what our life should look like. We trust God. We trust when he commands us to do things that we do it because we love him and we know him. As a father, we trust him. And so it should lead to um, an, an obedience, an obedience that we trust him. And, and this is a picture I found helpful, is um, one of a fireman. And uh, I'm sure all of you have seen films of firemen. Uh, I hear being a fireman is actually much more boring than this. But let's just stick to the Hollywood version of a fireman where you regularly have people jumping out of third stories onto those funky trampoline things they have, right? Which sounds hilariously exciting. But I would imagine there must be these times that firemen have where you have someone who maybe they haven't jumped out of a third story window before, you know, uh, like some of us haven't. And, and they have to say, you need to jump to this sheet, which doesn't look very safe, but otherwise you're going to die. And one of us here is the professional, and you need to trust me. And there could be these moments where the person on the windowsill says, um, yeah, yeah, I trust you. I, tr- I trust you're a fireman. I trust you know what you're doing. You've, you're dressed up. You look like a fireman. I trust you. Well, okay then, are you going to jump? No, <laughs> no, I am not. And, and see, that, that, that's, they don't actually trust him because it's not followed through with actions. 
The fireman would say, well, if you trust me, jump. Trust me here. I know what I'm doing. But you see, God, God isn't just a fireman. He's, he's not just a professional. He's also our father. And when God calls us to do something, when we open the Bible and we, we see a scripture and we know that's for me, I don't understand how it works out. I don't understand how I'll do this. I don't understand how um, I will go forward in life with this. But I trust you. You're my father. When you command me to do things in a certain way, I trust you. I remember becoming a Christian, and I was about 16, and um, I, I, I don't know, some of you may have experienced this before, but the Bible is radically different to what the world says about what we should do with our lives, about the kind of life decisions we should make, what we should do with our money, what we should do with our time, what we should do with our friendships, what we should do with sex, right? All of these things at 16, 16 were... <laughs> I need to get my words straight. Gosh, this happens every time. Um... At 16, oh, I was like, wow, this is really different. This is different to everything I'd grown up with. And, you know, what, uh, you know, what my parents had taught me, what my teachers had taught me, this is different. But something had happened in that I'd met God the Father. And I thought, God, if you raised your son from the grave, if he is resurrected and glorious and he lives in me, I trust you. And, and you know what? As, as, I've grown, as I've grown older and spent more time in the Bible, it makes more sense now. Now I see, oh, that's why you commanded me to do this or that. That's why you told me to not have sex before marriage, which at 16 was a really big deal. That's why you told me to, to give generously. That's why you told me to hang out with those who are, who are lesser, who are lesser off, who are poor and needy. And, and as I read the Bible, it starts to make sense. But in the beginning, often there are times when we just have to trust him. We have to be like Abraham and say... I do not see what you're doing with this. I do not understand, but you're God and I'm not. And that's okay. And this is what it looks like to follow God. And it moves on. Which bit did they get up to? You see, this is verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, um, some of you may know the story of, of, of Rahab, and this happens in Joshua 2, and essentially we, we have the city of Jericho uh, in the Old Testament uh, when Israel was about to take the land. They just crossed over the Jordan, and it was a really big step because I think it was the first city they took. And Jericho at the time was a fortress, right? It had this ginormous wall around it. Um, and so um, Israel sent out spies to spy out the land, um, and what we see is that we have this lady called Rahab, who's a prostitute, which it's looked, on, looked down upon in our society now, but it was even worse then. Um, she knew that even her profession, uh, even the th things she did for a job, was rebellion against God. And yet what we see is when she meets the spies, she, she, she basically acknowledges that God is God. She, she repents at that moment. She turns from her life of sin to a life of following Jesus. And what we see is, and the reason that James is mentioning it here, is that we immediately see actions she makes. Now, if you put yourself in Rahab's situation, you're surrounded by um, walls in this city. Uh, this city has an army. Uh, it's pretty terrifying. And you have these Israelites who are these newcomers. They haven't done anything particularly special by this stage. Um, and they've just crossed over the river. And it's these guys outside the walls. Who do you, when it comes down to a battle, who do you trust? It's the guys inside the walls. They're the ones that you trust, right? We have these ginormous walls that have not fallen for a long time. We're going to be okay. And yet what Rahab says is, no, I, I see who God is. 
I see his power, his might, his glory. I trust in him. And what she does is her actions of hiding these spies, if she'd been found out, she would have been put to death. Right? That's just how it worked. And yet she trusted in God. She trusted in something that although she couldn't see, she had faith in God. And it led to her being outrageously confident in God. It meant that she put her family at risk because she trusted who God was. And obviously we know the end of the story. So it's kind of easy for us to be like, well, of course Rahab should have done that. That's the obvious thing to do. But in the moment, that is a crazy thing to do. And it, it even the story doesn't get less crazy from there, right? We see the Israelites go, and what does God command them to do? Does he, um, does he send a tomahawk missile? Does he send them in with a battering ram? No, he says, I want you to basically dance and sing around the walls. And they're like, okay, fine. And so you see the Israelites dancing and singing around, around these walls, right? They may as well have congered around the walls. It, it, like, you're not doing anything for these. And I asked my RE teacher this, uh, like, when I was a kid. I remember not being a Christian, asking about, how did that happen? How on earth did that happen? And she was like, physics, right? It's just ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, what does God do? God uses their little actions, he uses their, you know, probably wasn't even that loud. Them shouting and singing around this city. And he just breaks the walls just like that. And they all fall down. And in that moment, Rahab, Rahab sees the powerful God that she trusted in before. The really key thing we see with Rahab is that she, she knew she wasn't justified by her works. Her whole life was a rebellion against God. And yet she believed and was justified and then acted. She was confident in God. I find this so challenging. Are we confident in God? Rahab was not confident in her works, but she was so confident in the God who'd saved her. Do we have that same confidence? When we're surrounded by a world who is so confident in these walls, in these walls of Jericho, is so confident in worldly things, are we willing to look at the Bible and say, no, God, I trust in you? And we don't know what, that could be for many different things. That could be trusting God. I need money, God. We are poor, but I trust you. I trust that you are God who provides. God, I'm in a desperate situation. I need you, but I trust in you. This is what God has called us to do. And life will throw at us all kinds of things. But he says, no, 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 like Rahab, trust in me. It leads us to an amazing confidence in God. In conclusion, the life, the life of a Christian is, uh, a picture I find useful, is um, it's like two pedals of a bike. We see that God initiates. God always initiates. God initiates with his justification, with his, with his extraordinary work, his death on a cross, his resurrection for all to see, his pursuit of us whilst we were still in our sin, his constant intercession before the Father, his relentless patience with us when we are in sin. He has made his move. Now it's time for our move. He is the first pedal on the bike. We respond to God. And if we don't, are we condemned? No. But I'd say if you spend your whole life not responding to God, what's happened to your heart? Because God says, I pour life into your heart. I pour flowing water into your heart. You, you, You cannot but respond. And God says, now it's your move. What are you going to do? Christian, what are you going to do in response to what God has done for you? What is it that God has put on your heart? What is it that he's called you to? There are things that the Bible calls all Christians to do, but there are also things that God has called us to. And there were a few words about the meeting that I think were particularly encouraging. There are things that God has, there are maybe words that God has put over your life. There are things that he has called you to, but they're hidden away in a suitcase somewhere.
And God would say, I have called you for a reason. I have saved you. I want you to respond to this. I want you to, like Rahab, like Abraham, respond through works. Because God has called us to wonderful things. God has, uh, wants to work through us. It's not just Jesus or me. Uh, okay, I completely trust in Jesus. I can just sit back and wait for heaven. Okay, I, I, don't, I don't do anything. No, no, no. It's Jesus through me. You know that Jesus only has one plan for his restoration of the world. He wants to use us. He doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have a backup for when we're like, nah, not today, God. He wants to use us. And he is longing to use us. And time and time again, that's why the the Spirit brings conviction that we would become more like Jesus and be used by Jesus. And in in case we think for a moment that this world is finished and complete, I think we're reminded this week that the world is still broken. Amen? There is still a lot of work to be done. There is still a lot of opportunity for the light of God to shine in this broken world. Friends, there are people to share Jesus with. There are neighbours, colleagues who are desperately need the gospel. There are, there are broken people to be restored. There is despair to be replaced with hope. You know, God gives us that. This gospel message we have, it bears hope. It gives joy. It means we can walk into situations of absolute despair and say, I do not know your situation I do not know you. I do not know the things that you have known, but I do know a God who does. Whatever despair you are facing right now, I know a God who gives hope. I know a God who gives life. There is an absolute desperate need for us to act, for us to work, for us to do something with this. There is opportunities for friendship in the place of loneliness. There is opportunity for miraculous, outrageously gospel-centered community to build. That's what we're doing. When we hold community in our house, when we um, are hospitable, when we welcome people into our lives, we are doing something that God's life will flow through. We are not just, you know, doing life, getting by, making friends. We are allowing Jesus to work through us. Some of you know that. Some of you have seen people come to know Jesus through just little actions that you do. Some of you are those people. Some of you are beneficiaries of someone working, of someone taking this text seriously and saying, I can't be silent. I can't stay still because God has filled my heart with such love, because God has given me such hope in his good news. I've got to do something about this. And it's okay. We don't have to all go start missionary organizations. It's fun. It's okay, all right? Please don't don't come away from this feeling, man, I need to be a completely different person. I need to be a Wesley. It's okay. God has given us different gifts for a reason. God says, use those gifts. Use them. If one is hospitable, be hospitable. If one is encouraging, be encouraging, etc., etc., etc. You know your gifts. You know what God's given you. Go use them. Go use them as a reflection of the goodness that God has poured into your hearts. Jesus wants to work through you, so let him. I'm going to pray for us. If you guys want to stand to your feet, I'm going to finish off and pray for us. I think there are two particular things that I'd love to pray for. And I think if if any of you feel, wow, today has really stirred me. There has been something of today, something in God's word that I need to respond to. Um, Let's not leave this. And like Dave preached a few weeks ago, it's so easy for us to hear something. Wow, that's amazing. And they do nothing about it. 
For me, I have to do stuff. I have to either speak to Amy, who will hold me to account, or write it down, or, or do something that will remind me of it. God, you have stirred something. You've started something in me. I need to respond. So, Lord God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your good news that today we are a redeemed people. If we've trusted in you, we are a redeemed people. Sin, shame, guilt, fear, pain is gone in Jesus. And we love you. We thank you, God, that we are free, that we are free indeed because of your work on the cross, because of your resurrection. That's us. The great exchange has happened. Our sin was put on your shoulders and you've given us new life. We thank you that we're free. But God, we ask, would you change us? Would you make us like you, Lord God? Jesus, would our actions reflect you? Some of us today need to start doing. Not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of joy. Lord God, I pray, would you fill our hearts? If there are people today who don't know you, who can't do good works because they don't know how, Lord God, would you fill their hearts this morning? God, would they know your new life? Would they know your salvation? Uh, Would they know your life and do works joyfully in response to your goodness? God, I pray for those of us today who know you, who know you, but we've separated out our life and what Jesus has done. We have over and over again said, "Uh, I don't need to do that. I I, I know God said we should do that, but uh, maybe not today, God. Lord, we need you. We, just like we need you for salvation, we need you day after day. We need you to do the good works you've called us to. You have saved us to good works. Lord God, would you use us? Would we be a people full of your good news, full of your grace, full of your mercy? God, I pray, would there be people, even this week, who are poor, who are needy, and you use us as your hands and your feet to save. As you use us to do extraordinary things. In your beautiful name, amen.